in our career in samsara are constantly looking for security. We want financial security, emotional security, political security, any kind of security, stability, predictability that we can possibly get. And yet, in a world that is under the control of ignorance, afflictions, and karma, in a world by which, which by nature is transient, produced by causes and conditions, changing moment by moment. In a world of that kind of nature, security is impossible. So rather than trying to grasp onto external situations, people, objects, whatever, and try and make them ours, to surround ourselves by them so that we will feel secure and know who we are. It's better to accept the nature of how things exist, that they are transient, unstable, And this inspires in us a wish to be free from being under the control of ignorance, afflictions, and karma. There's nothing particularly bad about things changing, but when they change under the control of afflictions and karma, then things are... uh, It's always like walking on the edge of a cliff. Never know what's going to happen. There's no possible security. So we want to renounce not only this situation of insecurity, but its causes, mental afflictions and karma. and instead aspire for a state of lasting peace, nirvana. But not a state where we're totally absorbed in our own personal lasting peace. That has blocked out all other living beings. So we want lasting peace, nirvana for ourselves and also for everybody else because we're in the same boat and because all these beings have been so kind to us as we've all struggled to maintain our head above water in this 
constantly changing world, this world fraught with instability and insecurity. All these beings have been kind to us. To generate the aspiration for full enlightenment, to repay their kindness by actualizing ourself and thus being able to show them the path to the deathless state, the unconditioned state, to nirvana. Last time we were talking about the different kinds of vows, or precepts, trainings. Now we talked about the parajika, or defeats, that if one commits one of those, then the ordination is finished. Then the second class, the Sangha Visesa, or sometimes called remainders or suspensions, where you have some remainder of your ordination left, but you're temporarily suspended from the Sangha until you are able to really understand uh, the wrongdoing that we got involved in and have sincere regret. And then when we're able to do that, then we're rehabilitated. And then the third uh, classification of the vows was Nyasatika Pasatika, or... um, uh, lapses with forfeiture. And those uh, are when we've obtained uh, an article in uh, an, a prohibited manner, you know, either possessing more than, than we should have or redirecting an offering or uh, taking advantage of a layperson's kind offering and wanting more, you know, these kinds of things where we've um, gotten something we shouldn't have. And this category of those also includes the ones about handling money and doing business, buying and selling, and also bartering. So it has a lot to do with how we get things, you know, the, the things that, that we need for our livelihood. So if we uh, obtain something in a in a way that's not very skillful, then we have to give that article up in the presence of the entire Sangha community. And so everybody knows what we've done. And then, uh, you know, they return it to us. But, it, you know, I imagine when it's been returned to you after you've had to give it up because you obtained it... <laughs> in an improper manner, you're probably not so thrilled about using it anymore. <laughs> so it could be cloth or, you know, the, you know, the bowl or whatever. Then the next category of vows are called piasatikas or lapses, simple lapses. And these ones are purified um, before you, you do the recitation at the posada. You have to go to a um, to a senior, to a bhikshu or a bhikshuni who is pure, who is not 
you know, committed a transgression against that precept and confess that to them. So again, it's, you know, it's really humbling how the Buddha set it up, you know, how much traditions really do this nowadays is another matter. But, you know, you have to go in the presence of somebody and uh, you don't just kind of casually say, well, I did this, bye. But you make three prostrations and put your hands together and kneel down and, you know, uh, admit what one did. So these kind of lapses are things like um, eating after midday, uh, killing an animal, all sorts of um, things about how we treat other Sangha members, you know, moving into rooms with them or taking, borrowing their things, um, you know, taking intoxicants. There's all sorts of, of different ones in this particular category. And the thing that's always intrigued me about this category is it has some of them that are the naturally negative. For example, remember I was talking about the two kinds of things? Negativities, the two kinds of transgressions. So some are naturally negative, such as killing an animal, and some are, you know, not to be done because the Buddha prohibited them, like eating after midday. And some seem um, really very severe, like to me, you know, killing an animal it seems fairly severe, but um, uh, destroying seeds doesn't seem nearly as severe, or uh, eating garlic, or, you know, doesn't seem nearly as severe. So it's kind of a, an interesting hodgepodge of different kind of things. There's also regulations in here about, you know, not swimming and not bathing more than once in two weeks. But, of course, there's a lot of exceptions for that, thank goodness. Um, <laughs> and we certainly do it for the benefit of sentient beings nowadays. Okay. Um, um, Things like, you know, going to stay near, going to stay with an army or uh, near a battlefield, um, you know, where you throw your chamber pot, um, spilling, you know, putting water on um, a place where there's living beings, uh, telling somebody that you have spiritual realizations, even if you do have them. So the one that was the defeat, yeah, the the um, Parajika is if you don't have them, lying about them. But it's also, you know, a transgression if you have them and, and you tell people you have them. Um, also telling lay people that a Sangha member committed a very grave offense. Uh, all sorts of things like this, um, you know, are prohibited. Then there's another category after that that are... Uh, that involves in the bhikshuni vows. There's eight of them. I'm not sure how many there are with the bhikshus. Um, where, and it involves medicine. Where if you have asked for some kind of substance that could be a medicine, but you don't really need it, okay? Like honey or ghee or you know different things like that. So. Uh, asking for things that, that aren't permitted. And it's all food substances that are considered medicine. 
Then there's um, rules of deportment in the Theravada for the monk. There's monks, there's 54 in the uh, Mulushravastavada for the nuns. There's a hundred of them, yeah. And these are all like um, different guidelines for comportment, like, you know, like not standing with your hands on your hips and not skipping and not, uh, you know, when you go into a layperson's house entering properly and, um, you know, kind of not stuffing your mouth with food and not chewing your food with your mouth open and not rolling your food into a ball and popping it in your mouth and, um, you know, not licking your bowl and wearing your robes properly and, uh, you know, different things like this, you know, not swinging your body around. and uh, So these are, are uh, quite interesting ones because they make us very um, mindful of how we're moving through space. Okay? So there are a lot just about etiquette things, but, you know, mindfulness and awareness of what we're doing has to start somewhere. And if we think about it, a lot of the things that really irritate other people are when people don't follow proper manners and etiquette. You know? Just simple things like, you know, please and thank you and folding something up and pushing your chair in and entering the room quietly and, not you know, shutting doors quietly and not screaming across the yard. and You know, all these small things... It's incredible in a community, these are the kinds of things that people just go bonkers over. You know, if you think about it, uh, if you're living in community, how often does somebody lie to you? You know, probably not so often. You know, you're not getting irritated or mad at somebody because they're lying to you or, you know, how often do they steal your stuff? You know, not so often. It's not those things that irritate people when they're living together. It's all this small stuff that has to do with etiquette. Because we're just mindless, you know. We use the sink and there's all of our toothpaste splattered all over and white spots in the sink. And we never think to, you know, wipe down the sink for the next person. Or we use the sink and the water's all over and we never think to clean it up. Or we never... Well, monastics don't have to worry about this. Lay people do. Pulling, you know, cleaning the shower, the hair all around the the drain of the shower, you know. So there's all these kinds of things that, and it's this kind of stuff that drives people nuts when they live together, isn't it? You know, you're coming into the meditation hall, somebody closes the door loudly. You know, we go bonkers. Or somebody puts their mala on the table and it makes a sound. Yeah. Now, I mean, part of this certainly is our problem because we're trying to, like, make everybody do everything exactly the way we want it done. But, you know, so part of it is our, our getting irritated at things that aren't worth getting irritated about. But the other part of it is our practicing to, to be aware of how we're moving through space and how that affects the people around us. And if we just kind of arrive in a room, Hi, everybody! You know, uh, 
or if we just kind of enter silently and suss out the situation, you know, what the volume of our speech, cleaning up after ourselves, all this kind of stuff. So it's really um, a, a practice of etiquette and I think it's also a practice of expressing our love and compassion and consideration for the people we live with. You know? Um, and uh, it, was, it was very interesting because there's one bathroom in the house that I often use to shower, you know? So there's somebody living, uh, using that bathroom several months ago, and then there was, you know, Reverend Clarissa using that bathroom. And there was a big difference in the state of the bathroom between the two people using it, you know? And so it, you know, Reverend Clarissa was trained and she cleaned up after herself and everything was neat. And, you know, the other person didn't care. Okay? So, you know, it's a thing with our own mind to really to really care about the effects of, of our actions on other people, you know? So, of course, there's, you know... If we had our, our own style of things, it would be when you get done using the loppers, put them back in the shed. Uh, you know, when the um, when the gardening gloves are, are, you know, make sure you put them together, a right and a left together, so that the next person uses them, have two that match. You know, these kinds of things. Um, when you take the offering down from the altar, we don't just leave it on the table for somebody else to clean up. We clean it up. Or when the mail comes in and there's junk mail, we don't just leave the junk ma- pull our mail out and leave the junk mail there for somebody else to th- toss away. We toss it away ourselves. So all these, you know, various things that that uh, you know help us live together more peaceably peacefully with the people we live with. And in the case of the Sangha, you know, because lay people look at you all the time, these are the kind of trainings that help you look respectable in the eyes of lay people. And, you know, when I first went to, to train in, uh, in Taiwan, you know, because the Tibetans, our eyes are like all over the place. You know, we're looking at everything. What's happening here? What's happening there? You know, and the Chinese nuns, you know, especially this was an ordination training program, so they were really strict with us. And when you walk somewhere, your eyes had to be down. You know, you weren't kind of checking everybody out, waving to your friends and hi and, you know, this kind of thing. Yeah, or if you were looking, you know, you look up to see where you're going, and you would greet people respectfully like this. You know, but they were very specific. You don't see your old friend and go, "Hi, I haven't seen you in years. Give me a big hug," you know, because that's just not so chart. You know, pleasing. Uh, it doesn't give a good visualization, as Lama Yeshi would say, about sangha behavior. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So there's all these kinds of things that you learn just to be aware of that, you know, and uh, yeah, and and certain situations you you act differently. And I remember when I, you know, I was doing the, the training in in Taiwan when we would go out because uh, it was a one month training, you know, which included the time, the periods of our ordinate, they're the ceremonies of our ordinations. Um, when we went out, you know, our robes were like completely nice. 
we were quiet, we walked slowly, and you know, when all of us came back into our own dormitory, then sometimes we would laugh, you know, we would laugh and, you know, and joke around and things like that. Because it wasn't like you were putting on a face or a front, but it was just, you know, you behave differently in different situations with different people. Yeah. And so it was so much emphasized to us to really give a good visualization to the lay people. And of course, when you're, you know, alone and you're with other Sangha members, you, you know, you laugh or you joke around or whatever. Okay. Uh, and then uh, also at the, at the end, there's a, another category um, that are the seven ways of resolving conflicts. So these are kind of the mediation tools, our conflict resolution tools that the Buddha instituted. You know, different ways of, of uh, yeah, seeing what really went on, and you know, somebody was uh, did that or didn't do it. Um, what you see in in the list of precepts is that you see the absence of some factors that were common to the Brahminical tradition, like the whole Brahminical thing of certain foods being pure or impure, or certain people being pure or impure. Okay, so that whole um, thing, that, you know, of purity was, was not included in, in the Buddhist precepts. Um, or the whole societal thing about different things being unlucky. Yeah. You're supposed to stay away from unlucky things. So the Buddha didn't include those things in the precepts. What's quite interesting is that monastics, and this is included in the precepts, you're not to, uh, to do astrology or, um, any kind of fortune telling or divination or anything like that. Uh, because the Buddha wanted the Sangha to be really involved in purely spiritual things, not having the lay people come to them all the time to tell fortunes and, and do stuff like that. And similarly, um, we're not allowed to dig the earth or to, to do agricultural things. No. Um, first, because there's the danger of killing sentient beings, but second, there's also the thing that you just get distracted by doing agriculture all day and don't have any time for your practice. And the same thing about doing business, buying and selling. Then, you, you know, it takes your mind away from the practice. So the Buddha, um, you know, simplified the Sangha's life by, by prohibiting certain activities so that we had more time just to engage in the study and practice of the teachings. Okay. There were different um, disciplinary procedures, you know. Um, like I said, you know, sometimes you confess in front of the group or with the lapses to a particular individual who was, who was pure. With the ones on the deportment, those you just confess to yourself. You know, you acknowledge that you did that. Um, there are certain things. If somebody um, may, is very... Uh, involved in making a lot of strife and dissension and causing a lot of disharmony, then that person is is really strongly rebuked in the in the presence of the sangha, and they can't participate in ordinations and guiding the novices um, 
in in admonishing other monastics, in uh, training the juniors or or things like that. The way they associate with other sangha members is limited because they they just love to cause disharmony. Yeah. Um, sometimes the, those people, if they get too bad, they're they're asked to leave the community and just go elsewhere. They aren't disrobed, but they're just said, you know, you can no longer stay here because you're just creating problems for everybody. Okay, there's um, some, if if certain monastics are very ignorant or foolish, uh, or um, do acts of subordination, you know, like like one of our, our precepts is if you go to the recitation of the precepts and you say, oh, I've never heard that precept before. Where, where did that one come from? You know, and it's like clearly you've had teachings on it. You've heard it every time it's recited in the posada ceremony. But now you're playing like, oh, duh, I didn't know it. So either you're playing like that or you're really spaced out, you know. So, so somebody who's who's like that, then their privileges are suspended, and they're placed under the care of a tutor who teaches them, <laughs> you know, until they kind of get it. Um, somebody who who acts in a very scandalous way, who uh, really upsets the lay people in a bad way, you know, they're suspended or they're banished. They're asked to leave the area. Um, yeah, so really doing things that in lay people's houses that, that just cause so much turmoil and, and make the sangha look really bad and stuff like that. Um, if you offend the laity, just smaller things that are offensive to the laity, then there's an act of reconciliation and you forfeit, you know, various monastic privileges until you... Um, Ask and obtain the pardon of the person that you offended. Okay, so you have to apologize. And then if somebody um, has wrong views, you know, holds on to wrong doctrines, and especially if they're um, spreading those kind of wrong teachings in the Sangha community, that is like really a disaster for the community. You know, because can you imagine everybody's trying to practice in the same way and then somebody comes in and says, why are you meditating on selflessness? There's a soul and I perceive the soul and we have to merge with the unifying cosmic energy. Uh, and everybody hear these new books that you ha- you should read to learn how to for your soul to unify with the universal co- conscious you know cosmic energy. And somebody's teaching this kind of thing in a in a Buddha sangha, it's going to be mess, you know, because it's just going to uh, get everybody else confused about what the correct view is, and then that person will gather a little clique around them that will then go out against the rest of the sangha. And, you know, you have this all the time, people kind of, you know, they're Buddhist, and then they'll find some other weird view. I mean, now we will say it's New Age stuff, but, you know, back at the time of the Buddha, there were all these wandering sects with different views, and somebody hears something, and, oh, yeah, that kind of makes sense. You know, and you'd think, oh, how, how could anybody really believe in some of this stuff? It's so weird. But I remember Geshe Sutter mentioned telling us 
uh, you know, we were studying the Sabkas, this was an ancient Indian tradition, and the reason you study them is so that you learn their views and how to repeat them, how to refute them. And we were going to him, well, why are we, these things are so stupid, why are we learning them, you know? He said, look, actually, it's you who's so stupid, <laughs> because if a great Sankhya master came here with his reasoning and logic, it would have, you, he could convince you that these things were true. Yeah? So he, he really made it, put us in our places, you know, that we shouldn't be so arrogant about, oh, I have the correct view, I don't have any danger of falling to wrong views. You know, because you get somebody coming in and teaching this, that, and the other thing, and then, yeah, you get somebody who's charismatic coming in and saying, yeah, just put the crystals here and put the crystals there, and then your consciousness will merge, will merge with the universal God, you know? And then you go, wow, yeah. You know? <laughs> okay, or somebody comes in and says, you know, Jesus loves you, and you've been sitting there feeling so lonely in your ordination, you know? No sex, no, you know, no talk, no this, no that. And then they say, Jesus loves you. And you go, finally, somebody loves me. I love Jesus. <laughs> Hallelujah. You know, and then you start teaching the other members. You know, well, Jesus is a bodhisattva, so instead of chanting, O Mani Pemi Hong, we can say the Lord's Prayer, and we can say, you know, Om Jesus, Jesus, Hong Pei Soha, and you know, <laughs> I mean, you never know <laughs> what's going to happen. <laughs> so, somebody who kind of does this kind of thing and is involved in wrong views, I mean, clearly they have to leave the Sangha community because they're in turmoil themselves and they're just going to get everybody else all worked up about it, okay? So, you know, that person is admonished, and of course, if they mend their ways, then they're welcome back into the Sangha community. But if they don't, then they don't really belong there. 